Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. As you just heard, our gospel reading this morning opens with Jesus speaking to his disciples about what St. Mark describes in Jesus' words as Christ's great suffering. This comes on the heel of the conversation where Jesus asks the disciples, who is it that you say that I am? Peter answers correctly, you are the Messiah, the chosen one. And then of course, and we're not going to get to this today, Peter then stumbles into rebuking Jesus, which is just, for all of Peter's stumbling, you got to give the guy credit when it comes to courage. But I want to invite us to sit with Jesus' words as he spoke to them about the great suffering that he would endure. And here's where I want to begin, but I also want to tell you where I want to end in order to make some sense of the beginning. Just a few short verses later, Jesus will look at the crowds and his first friends, and he will say to them words that many of us are familiar with. If any of you want to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. This past week, I came across a a woman, a saint I had never heard of before, Saint Mother Maria Skopstova of Paris. Has anyone ever heard of Mother Maria? Uh, She was a 20th century martyr that lived a life that was incredibly focused on helping others. And it was a life that would end in a Nazi gas chamber. Maria Skopstova was an Orthodox Christian nun who encouraged her entire life hospitality and a radical love of neighbor. She considered this to be the foundation of the Christian gospel. And not only did she claim it and teach it and write about it, but she embodied it. Maria would die in Ravensbrück prison. She was born to an incredibly well-to-do rich family, and for most of her life, she was an atheist. And after going through a very brutal divorce, she began to look at the humanity of Jesus. And in this beholding, she was drawn back into the heart of Christianity. She was a single mother for most of her life. She ended up being a mayor of her town. She was a poet. She's pretty amazing. But maybe one of my favorite things about her is after her second divorce, she discerned a call to take vows to become a nun. But her only condition as she was speaking with the bishop was that she would take on holy vows and become a nun only if the bishop could guarantee that she did not have to live in a monastery secluded from the world. I love that. And so her convent remained a place that was open to anyone who would need it. And her life was one marked by service to the poor and also a space for the deep intellectual exploration of theology. During World War II, when the Nazis took Paris, where St. Maria was there at that time, many Jews began to make their way to her convent asking for forged certificates of baptism. And her and her fellow compatriots gladly did so. 
We do not know how many lives they saved by forging baptismal certificates. They provided many families shelter until eventually they were discovered and shut down. She was taken with others to Ravensbrook. And on Holy Saturday, the day before Easter, Mother Maria was taken to a gas chamber and she entered into eternity. And only later would it come out that she had taken the place of another who had been selected for death. Why do I tell you all this? Because Mother Maria Skupstova lived and died in a particular way. A way that was cruciform, shaped deeply and profoundly by the cross. But, and this is the end before the beginning, she did not see the cross she had taken up as her cross. That's overly individualistic. Her cross was Christ's cross, and it was her neighbor's cross. Christ's cross was not his cross, but hers and her neighbor. Her neighbor's cross was not their cross. It was Christ's cross, and it was hers. Listen to this statement she wrote before her death. Our neighbor's cross should be a sword that pierces our soul. To co-participate, co-feel, co-suffer with our neighbor's destiny, that is love. Christ this morning draws our attention to his sufferings and to his cross. And as many of us know, the cross long before it became our symbol was the symbol of the empire. The Romans learned it from Carthage. And Carthage had become incredibly adept at using it as a tool to suppress, to murder, to threaten, to control, to push for success. If you were a Carthaginian general and you failed, then you would be crucified outside the front gates. And many of us have been handed an understanding of the cross that is not too different from how the empire would use it. Too often the cross has been used to justify suppression of people groups, the murder of people groups. I I think specifically about the genocide of so many indigenous populations under the name of Christ. It's been used to threaten us into obedience to the one who died upon the cross. It's been used, printed on top of flags of the empire and used as a justification for partisan political visions and positions. But this cross, this cross is not an image of terror. It is a symbol of divine love. This is not a tool of death or destruction or power or control. This is the highest demonstration of God's love. It is a revelation that God's name is mercy. It is a witness to a God who is self-giving, self-emptying, and whose love by its very nature is self-sacrificing. Our Old Testament reading in our epistle, which you heard Lori read, draw our attention to the promise-making, promise-keeping God. A God who promises healing and freedom from the woundedness of our sin whose promise takes on flesh and lives among us. This is in part what will drive St. Paul to write the hymn that he does in the opening of Ephesians 1. Listen to these words. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love, he destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and insight. He has made made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he may put forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. I want to read that line again. He's revealed to us the mystery put forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness, in the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. This is the plan. This is the gospel. To bring together all things. And in that bringing together of all things, that bringing is a bringing into God. All that he is, the fullness of God is poured into us. And in that pouring, he brings his life and the very life of the divine trinity, not just into our lives, but into all of the cosmos. Why else would creation be groaning in Romans 8? Because creation knows what we are only learning and coming to know, that God has poured his fullness out in us, that it might bring all things into God. St. Athanasius in his well-known work on the incarnation has a line that if I'm honest, I often try to nuance and explain away, but I'm actually just going to let it hang. Quote, for the son of God became human that we might become God. Unquote. For the son of God became human so that we might become God. To be brought up into Christ is to be brought up into God for the life of the world. If I can, I want you to hear those words as the word of God for you at this moment. You have been brought up into Christ. And to be brought up into Christ is to be brought up into God for the life of the world. Mother Maria Skopstova again, our neighbor's cross, Christ's cross, our cross should be a sword that pierces our soul to co-participate, to co-suffer with our neighbor's destiny. This is love. And so, how do we do that? Bishop Chris Green, an Anglican bishop, puts it this way, quote, before you can see the needs of anyone, you must see the one who is all they need. Before you see the needs of anyone, you must see the one who is all they need. You must see how he is seen by the Father. You must see how Christ looks at others, especially those most desperately in need. You must see how they look to him in both senses of that phrase. You must feel in your own heart what happens in his when he sees people lost like a sheep without a shepherd. So how is it that we come to have Christ's heart? 
the heart of the Lord, who is not a master, but a slave. How do we come to have the heart of the God who is not a master, but a slave? By seeking his face and seeking to and into our beholding of his beauty and watching with him. I don't know if any of you are familiar with a theologian still alive. Uh, Her name is Maggie Ross, Uh, but she is a theologian um, and is the spirit was the spiritual director for Desmond Tutu. Can you imagine that job? She has a book. I actually picked up uh, her book on silence. One of the central invitations to me in this season of Lent has been to erode the noise. So she has three volumes on silence. Felt like a good place to start. But another one of her books, writing the icon of the heart, she writes this. I don't usually do this, but I'm going to read a little bit of a longer quote. Because I just, she's really good. Here's how we seek his face. Quote, behold, is the marker word throughout the Bible. It signifies shifting perspective, the holding together, or even the conflating of radically different points of view. It indicates the moment when the language of belief is silenced by the exaltation of faith as the paradoxical perspectives are brought together and generate, as it were, an explosion of silence and light. This silence holds us in thrall, in complete self-forgetfulness. Our settled accounting of ordinary matters is shattered and falls into nothing as light breaks upon us. Beholding is not confined to monastic cells. It is the wellspring of ordinary life transfigured. Behold is profoundly theological. It describes a reciprocal holding in being, the humility of God sharing the divine nature with what it creates. God, the creator of all, God who is beyond being and humility allows us created beings to hold God in being in space and time, even as God is sustaining us in existence and holding us in eternity. This one is not Maggie Ross, but in that moment, that line makes me think of Mary who taught the word made flesh how to speak who brushed the hair of the God who knows how many hairs count our head. Maggie Ross continues, Behold, behold the God who is infinitely more humble than those who pray to him, more stripped, more emptied, more self-outpouring, and what we need to remember, that humility and humiliation are mutually exclusive. Humility knows only love, and God is love. The scandal of the incarnation is not that we are naked before Emmanuel, God with us, but God is naked before us and in utter silence, given over into our hands and heart. And it is in the depths of this beholding in the silence of the loving heart of God that the divine exchange takes place most fully, where each of us in our own uniqueness and strangeness is transfigured into the divine life. And it is for this that God comes to us, the word made flesh, stable born and crucified. There's something else too in this beholding. The great commandment tells us this seamless love applies as much to our neighbor as to God. Beholding makes it possible to live out the great commandment. It invites us to abandon our very limited perspectives and ideas so that many aspects of life and community become not so much less different as irrelevant 
to the point of not being noticed. To behold God is everything. And to behold God in everything is the antidote to frenetic activity, to stress, and to busyness. It enables us to live from, to continually return to, and dwell in the depth of silent communion with God. And as this is something God does in us, we have only to allow it to cease our striving and behold, unquote. (laughs) How do we behold? How do we behold? The answer is so simple, it's going to feel like a pastoral juke and is going to be easily dismissible. How do we behold? Beloved friends, I would say to you, we behold by putting our physical bodies where Christ has told us he is present. At his table. As the people of God gathered together, having been brought up and being brought up into the life of God, into the life of one another and into the life of the world. Or as we say in our prayers, the gifts of God for the people of God. This is the beholding of Christ for those who would behold Christ. And for those who would come to find in their beholding that we are beheld. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm going to invite us to sit with God and with one another in silence. As one of my favorite spiritual writers says, silence is God's language and everything else is just commentary. And if you would like to close your eyes, I'll invite you to do so. But if you feel so comfortable, I'll invite you to just allow your eyes to settle on the cross so wonderfully sewn by our friend Amy. Or allow your eyes to rest on the cup and the bread baked by our wonderful friends at Cuckoo. To behold Christ, who is bringing all things into himself for the sake of the world. Let us behold together. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.